Section three of Le Petinard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan. Le Petinard by Anne Grenfell and Katie Spaulding. Section three. The Children's Home, August nineteen. In response to my frantic cables, your box reached here safely, but it has not reached me. Picture, if you can, my amazed incredulity yesterday to see an exact replica of myself, as I once was, walking on the dock. I rubbed my eyes and stared. Yes, it was my purple gown. My first impulse was to jerk it off the culprit, but I decided on more diplomatic tactics. A very little detective work elucidated the mystery. You had addressed the box in care of the mission, thinking doubtless, in your far-sighted, scotch way, that if sent to an individual— the said individual would have duty to pay. Knowing all too well the chronic state of my pocket-book, you anticipated untoward complications. Now, none of the mission staff pay duties. The contents of the box were mistaken for reinforcements for the charity clothing store, and today my purple chambray gown, to memory dear, walks the street on another. Sick transit. I should add that one of the modernists of our harbour has chosen it. The old conservatives regard our collarless necks and abbreviated skirts with horror. What with the loss en route of several necessary articles of apparel, and the discovery of this further depletion of my wardrobe, I regard the oncoming winter with some misgivings. One of the crew on the northern light, alias the Prophet, so-called because he is spirit brother to the Prophet of Doom, took a keen relish in my discomfiture, or I fancied he did. He it was who put the question in the doctor's Bible class. Is it religious to wear overalls to church? The house officer had carefully saved a pair of clean khaki trousers to honor the Sunday services, but in the local judgment they were no fit garment for the Lord's house. Local judgment, I may add, was not so drastic in its strictures on boudoir caps. Some very pretty ones came to service on the heads of the choir, but the verdict was a unanimously favorable one. A nomadic ladies' home journal was responsible for their origin. Out of the mouths of babes, etc. I have been trying to teach the little ones the thirteenth chapter of Corinthians. Whilst undressing Solomon the other night, I had occasion, or it seemed to me that I had, to speak somewhat sharply to one of the others. When I turned my attention again to Solomon, he enunciated solemnly in his baby tones, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. You complain most unjustly that I do not give a chronological account of events. I give you the incidents which punctuate my days, and as for the background, nothing could be simpler than to fill it in. To divert your mind from such adverse criticism, let me tell you that there is a strong suspicion abroad that I am a devout adherent of the Roman Church. Rumors of this have been coming to me from time to time, but I determined to withhold the news until its source was less in question. Now I have it on the undeniable authority of the Prophet. I have candles, lighted ones, on the dining-room table at dinner. Post hoc, propter hoc. And what further proof is needed? Ananias has broken yet another window. When I questioned him as to when the deed had been committed, he replied politely, but mournfully, that he really could not tell me how many years ago it was, as if I were seeking to unearth some long undiscovered crime. August 25 the other day Topsy had the misfortune to fall out of bed, and hit her two front teeth such a violent blow on the iron bar of the cot beside hers, that bits of ivory flew about the dormitory. This necessitated a prompt matutinal visit to Dr. B., the dentist. As we waited our turn in the convalescent room, 
I overheard one patient-to-be remark to his neighbor, They do be shockin' hard on us poor sailors. They says I've got to take a bath when it comes to hospital. Why, but I hasn't had a bath since my mother washed me. The ethics of dentistry here are so mixed that one needs a Solomon to disentangle them. Mrs. Uncle Life, her husband is Uncle Eliphalet, recently had all her teeth pulled out, or, to be more accurate, all her remaining teeth. As the operation involved considerable time, labor, and novocaine, she was charged for the benefit of the hospital. When two shining sets, upper and lowers, were ready for her, she was as pleased as a boy with his first jackknife, but not so Uncle Life. He considered it a work of supererogation that not only must one pay to have the old teeth removed, but for the new ones to replace them. Did I ever write to you about our chambermaid's feet, the new one? Her name is Asenath, and she is so perfectly spherical that if you were to start her rolling down a plank, she could no more stop than can those humpty-dumpty weighted dolls. Senath's temper is exemplary, and her intentions of the best. In fact, she will turn into a model maid. But the process of turning is in progress at the moment. It began with our cook, a pattern of neatness and all the virtues, coming into my office and complaining, One of us'll have to go, miss. What? Which? I inquired, dazed by the abruptness of this decision, and wondering whether she were referring to me. This morning, miss, you know how hot it was. Well, Sanath comes into the kitchen and says to me, Trifina, I finds my feet something wonderful. Wash them and change your stockings, I says. Wash them? Why, Trifina, I's feared to do that. I might get a chill as would strike in. In a few well-chosen sentences, I have explained to Sanath the basic rules of hygiene and of this house regarding water and its uses. She has decided to stay and accept the inevitable weekly bath, but she warns me fairly that if she goes into a decline, I must take the responsibility with her parents. With your zeal for gardens, and your attachment to angleworms, which you will recall I do not share, you would be interested in our efforts along these lines. The gardens, not the worms. In this climate a garden is a lottery, and in ten seasons to one a spiteful summer frost will fall upon the promising potatoes and kill the lot just as they are ripening. The Eskimos at the Moravian stations put their vegetal charges to bed each night with long covers over the rows. The other day, in an old journal about the country, I came upon this passage and it struck me. How history does repeat itself. It runs, The soil along the coast is not deep of earth, but bringing forth abundantly peas and small, peas in which our countrymen have sown have come up fair, of which our general had a present acceptable for the rareness being the first fruits coming up by art and industry in that desolate and disinhabited land. I can assure you that the sight of a peason, however small, if it did not come out of a tin can, would be an acceptable offering to your friend. Even in summer we get no fresh vegetables or fruits with the exception of occasional lettuce or local berries. The epitome of this spot is a tin. In the same old journal Whitburn goes on to say that Nature had recompensed that only defect and incommodity of some sharp cold by many benefits, with incredible quantity and no less variety of kinds of fish in the sea and fresh water, of trouts and salmons and other fish to us unknown. I have eaten fish, interspersed liberally with tin stuff, and drunken fish, and thought and spoke and dreamt fish ever since I arrived. But don't pity me for imaginary hardships. I like fish better than I do meat and for that matter our winter meat supply is walking past my window this minute. He goes by the name of Billy the Ox, and I am informed that as soon as it begins to freeze he is to be killed and frozen in toto for the winter consumption of the staff, patients, and children. So our winter is not to consist of one long Friday. August 28. 
You already know the worst about my leanings to papacy. But today I propose to set your mind at rest on an idea with which you have hypnotized yourself. Namely, that I am going to die of malnutrition during what you are pleased to term the long arctic winter. I have no intention of starving, and as for the long arctic winter, I do not believe there is any such beast, as the farmer said when he looked at the kangaroo in the circus. I was sitting by my window quietly sewing the other day. That sentence alone should reveal to you how many miles I have traveled from your tutelage. When I overheard one of the children stoutly defending what I took at first to be my character, the next sentence disabused me. It was my figure under discussion. She's not fat, averred Topsy. I'll smack you if you says it again. Well, muttered David, the light of reason being thus forcibly borne in upon him. She may not be exactly fat, but she's fine and hearty. If this is the case, and my mirror all too plainly confirms the verdict, and the summer has not waned, what will the last estate of that woman be? after the winter has passed over her. They tell me that everyone here puts on fat in the cold weather as a kind of windproof jacket. They enclose a photograph of me on landing, so you may remember me as I was. No, you need not worry either over communications in the winter. You really ought to have an intimate acquaintance with our telegraph service, after you have, so to speak, subsidized it during the past three months. It runs in winter as well as summer, and I see no prospect of its closing if you keep it on such a sound financial basis. Moreover, the building is devoted to the administration of the law in all its branches. One half of it is the post and telegraph office, while the other serves as the jail. The whole structure is within a stone's throw of the church and school, as if the corrective institutions of the place believed in intensive cultivation. But to return to the jail, the walls are very thin, and every sound from it can be plainly heard in the telegraph office adjoining. Friday morning the operator, a capable and long-suffering young woman, came over to complain to the doctor that she really found it impossible to carry out the duties of her office, if the feeble-minded Delilah Freak was to be incarcerated only six inches distant from her ear. It seems that Delilah spends her days yelling at the top of her lungs, and Miss Dennis states that she prefers to take telegraphic messages down in competition with the mail steamer's winch, rather than with Delilah's bawling. I know all about competition in noises after trying to write in this house. The ceilings are low and thin, and the walls are near and thin, and the children are omnipresent, and not thin, and their wants and their joys and their quarrels are as numerous as the fishes in the sea, and there you have the problem in a nutshell. Now I must haps the door and hie me to bed. As a matter of fact, the people here are far too honest for us to lock the doors. Such a thing as theft is unheard of. Some may call it uncivilized. I call it the millennium. August 31 I believe that the writer who described the climate of this country as being nine months snow and three months winter was not far from the truth. In June the temperature of our rooms registered just above freezing point. In July we were enveloped in continuous fog, and in August we are having snow. Such a tragic event has occurred. Our lettuce has been eaten by the mission cow. You know how hard it is to get anything to grow here. Well, after having nearly killed ourselves in making a square inch of ground into something resembling a bed, we had watched this lettuce grow from day to day as the little green shoots struggled bravely against the frost and cold. Then a few nights ago I was awakened by the tinkle of a bell beneath my window. Hastily flinging on wrapper and shoes, I fled to save our one and only ewe lamb. But all the morning light revealed was a desperate cold in the head and an empty bed from which the glory had departed. Topsy has just been amusing herself by turning on the corridor taps to watch the water run downstairs. Oh, Topsy, 
"'Tis thine to teach us what dull hearts forget, "'how near of kin we are to springing flowers. "'News has just reached us that the mail-boat "'from St. Barbe to St. Antoine "'has gone ashore on the rocks and is a total wreck. "'Happily no lives were lost, "'but unhappily wrecks are of such frequent occurrence "'on this dangerous coast as to excite little comment. "'Drusilla, aged five, has been to my door "'to inquire if the children may play "'with their dolls in the house.' I believe in open-air treatment, so I replied with kindness, but firmly withal, that out-of-doors was the order of the day. I was a little electrified to hear her return to the playroom and announce that, Teacher says you are to go out, every darn one of you. I was equally electrified the other day to overhear Drusilla inquiring of her fellow philosophers which they liked the best, Teacher, the Doctor, or the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of writing to you, I was called away to interview a young man from the other side of the harbor. He wanted me to give him some of the milk used in the home for his baby, as at the hospital they could only furnish him with canned milk, guaranteed by the label, he claimed, to give typhoid, diphtheria, and scarlet fever. September 7. It is a windy, rainy night, and I have told Topsy, who has a cold, that she cannot come with us to church. After a wild outburst of anger, she was heard to mutter that teacher wouldn't let her go to church because she was afraid she would get too good. The fall of the year is coming on, and the evenings are made wonderful by two phenomena, the departure of the cannibalistic flies and the northern lights. Twice at home I remember seeing an attenuated aurora and thinking it wonderful. No words can describe this display on these crisp and lovely nights. There is a tang and snap in the air, and the earth beneath and the heavens above seem vibrating with unearthly light. The Eskimos say that the northern lights are the spirits of the dead at play, but I like to think of them, too, as the translated souls of the icebergs which have gone south, and met a too warm and watery death in the Gulf Stream. Certainly all the colors of those lovely monarchs of the north are reflected dimly in the heavens. The lights move about so constantly that one fancies that the soul of the berg, freed at last from its long prison, is showing the astonished worlds of what it is capable. The odd thing was that when I first saw them on a clear night, the stars shone through them, only they looked like Coleridge's wan stars which danced between. I can vouch for the truth of another sidelight, though from only one experience. One night last week, clear and frosty, I had just gone to my room at about eleven o'clock when the doctor called me to come out and hear the lights. I thought surely I must have misunderstood, but on reaching the balcony and listening I could distinctly hear the swish of the spirits as they rushed across the sky. It sounds like a diminished silk petticoat which has lost its blatancy but retains its personality. Little did I realize at the time my good fortune in arriving here in daylight. It seems that it is the invariable habit of all coastal steamers to reach here at night, and dump the dumbly resenting passengers in the darkness into the tiny punts which cluster around the ship's side. Since my arrival, every single boat has appeared shortly before midnight, or shortly after. In either case, it means that the men of the mission must work all night landing patients and freight, and the next day there is a chastened and sleepy community to meet the forthcoming tasks. It is especially hard on the hospital folk, for the steamer only takes about twenty hours to go to the end of her run and return, and they try and send those cases which do not have to be admitted back by the same boat on her southern journey. This means an all-night clinic, but I can say to the credit of the patients and staff that I have never heard one word of complaint. That is certainly a charming feature about this life. There are plenty of things to growl about, but one is so reduced to essentials that the ones selected are of more importance than those which afford such fruitful topics in civilization. I have just overheard Gabriel informing the other children that, 
Satan was once an angel, but he got real saucy, so God turned him out of heaven. Paradise lost in a sentence. The night after the audible lights, a furious rain and windstorm broke over us. No wonder the trees have such a struggle for existence if these storms are frequent. They do not last long, but they are the real thing while they are in progress. I used to smile when I was told that the home was riveted with iron bolts to the solid bedrock, but that night when I lay wide awake, combating an incipient feeling of mal de mer as my bed rocked with the force of the gale, I thanked the fates for the foresight of the builders. Never before had I believed in the tale of the church having been blown bodily into the harbor, but during those wild hours of darkness I was certain at each succeeding gust that we were going to follow its example. Dawn, a pale affair looking out suspiciously on the chastened world, broke at last, and I heisted my window, to quote the estimable Sanath. The rain had stopped. The cheated wind was whistling around the corners of the old wooden buildings, and taking out its spite on any passers-by who must venture forth to work. The harbour, usually so peaceful and so sheltered, was lashed into a cauldron of boiling white foam, and the rocks were swept so clean that they at least had shining morning faces. I dressed quickly and ran down to the wharf to inquire as to the health of the northern light. The first person I met was the prophet. He was positively elated. If I were a pantheist, I should think him a relative of the northeast wind. The storm of the previous night had been exactly to his liking. All his worst prognostications had been fulfilled, and quite a bit thrown in par-dessus le marché. He told me that a tiny, rickety house across the harbour had first been unroofed, and then one of the walls blown in. It is a real disaster for the family, for they are poor enough without having kismet thus descend upon them. The hospital boat had held on safely, but several little craft were driven ashore. Naturally, the children love the aftermath of such an event, for the world is turned for them into one large entrancing puddle, bordered with embryo mud-pies. Topsy again. I am informed that she has tried to convert her Sunday best into a hobble-skirt, reducing it in the process to something hopelessly ludicrous. It can never, never be worn again. My arm aches, and I cannot decide whether it is from much orphan-scrubbing or from much writing, but in either case I must bid you au revoir. September 25 Last night I was awakened by a terrific noise proceeding from the lower regions. Armed with my umbrella, the only semblance of a stick within reach, I descended on a tour of investigation. Opening the larder door, I beheld six huge dogs, and devastation reigning supreme. These dogs are half-wolf in breed, and very destructive, as I can testify. When I wildly brandished my umbrella, which could not possibly have harmed them, they jumped through the closed window, leaving not a pane of glass behind. This, I suppose, is merely a nocturnal interlude to break the monotony of life in a country which boasts no burglars. The children attend the mission school, and yesterday Topsy was sent home in dire disgrace for lying and cheating. She is not to be permitted to return until she is willing to confess and apologize. She thereupon tried to commit suicide by swallowing paper pellets, and in the night the doctor had to be called in to prescribe. She is white and wan today, but when I went in to bid her good night, I found her thrilling over a new prayer which she had learned, and which she repeated to me with deep emotion. Little children, be ye wise, speak the truth and tell no lies. The Lord's portion is to dwell forever in the flames of hell. I want to tell you something about our babies. They are four in number. David, aged five, considers himself quite a big boy, and a leader of the others. His father was frozen to death in Eskimo Bay some years ago whilst hunting food for his family. 
Although David is always boasting of his strength and the superior wisdom of his years, yet he is really very tiny for his age. He is a delightful little optimist, who announces cheerfully after each failure to do right that he is going to be good all the time now, to which we add the mental reservation, until next time. He is the proud possessor of a teddy bear. This long-suffering animal was a source of great pleasure until a short time ago, when David started making a first-hand investigation to find out where the squeak came from, an investigation which ended disastrously for the bear. However, it may have furthered the cause of science. Last month I went to Nameless Cove to fetch to the home a little boy of three, of whom I have already written you. Nameless Cove is about twelve miles west of St. Antoine. I have never seen such a wretched hovel. A one-roomed log hut, completely destitute of furniture. The door was so low I had to bend almost double to enter. A rough shelf did duty for a bed, upon which lay an old bedridden man while at the other end lay a sick woman with a child beside her, and crouched below was an idiot daughter. Altogether nine persons lived in this hut, eight adults and this one boy. Ananias is an illegitimate child, and has lived with these grandparents since his mother lost her reason and was removed to the asylum at St. John's. The child was almost destitute of clothing and covered with vermin. He has the face of a seraph, and a voice that lisps out curses with the fluency of a veteran trooper. Ananias is David's shadow. He follows him everywhere, and echoes all his words as if they were gems of wisdom, far above rubies. Indeed, when David has ceased speaking, one waits involuntarily for Ananias to begin in his shrill, treble tones. He is a hopeless child to correct, for when you imagine you are scolding him very severely, and you look for the tears of penitence to flow, he puts up his little face with an angelic smile and lisps, "'Tis me!' Drusilla, whose slight acquaintance you have already made, is three and comes from Savage Cove. The father has gradually become blind, and the mother is crippled. Drusilla keeps us all on the alert, for we never know what she will be doing next. On Sunday mornings she is put to rest with the other little ones while we are at church. On returning last Sunday I found that she had secured a box of white ointment, thought to be quite beyond her reach, and with her toothbrush painted one side of the baby's face white which with her other rosy cheek gave her the appearance of a clown. Not content with portrait painting, Drusilla then turned her energies to house decoration, the result attained on the wall being entirely to the satisfaction of the artist, as was evidenced by the proud smile with which our outcry was greeted. The real baby is Beulah, just two years, and she exercises her gentle but despotic sway over all, from the least to the greatest. She is continually upsetting the standard of neatness which was once the glory of this home by sprawling on the floors, dragging after her a headless doll with sawdust oozing from every pore. A dilapidated bunny and several mangled pictures complete the procession. It is hopeless to protest, for she just looks as if she could not understand how anyone could object to such priceless treasures. She awakens us at unconscionable hours in the morning, when all reasonable beings are still sleeping the sleep of the just and keeps up a perpetual chatter interspersed with highly dangerous gymnastic feats upon her bed can you find any babies throughout the british isles to match mine october twenty since last i wrote you we have had a very strenuous time in the home the entire family has been down with measles then when that was over and the children well the sewing-maid whom i had engaged shortly after my arrival gave notice shook the dust from her feet and i was left single-handed it took the whole of my time to keep these forty-odd infants fed, clothed, and washed, and I had no leisure to write to you even at scattered times. 
It seems to me that the appetites of these enfants terribles grew abnormally, that their clothes rent asunder with lightning-like rapidity, and that they fell into mud heaps with even greater facility than usual. It was sometimes a delicate problem to decide which of many pressing duties had the prior claim, whether to try and feed the hungry, the kitchen range having sprung a leak, to start to repair two hundred odd garments, the weekly mend, or to resuscitate one of the babies, just rescued from the reservoir. At such times I would wonder if I were somewhere near attaining to that state of experience when I should be able to appreciate your alluring phrase, the fun of mothering an orphanage. I must begin and tell you now about the children we have received since my last letter. Mike, aged eight, came to us from St. Barb Hospital, as he had no home to which he could return. Incidentally, it takes the entire staff to keep this boy moderately tidy, for he and his garments have an unfortunate inclination to part asunder, and we are kept in constant apprehension for the credit of the orphanage. But Mike, whether with his clothes or without, always turns up smiling and on excellent terms with himself, entirely regardless of the mental torture we endure as he comes into view. Indeed, the wider apart are his garments, the broader is his smile. He weeps quietly each night as we wash him, for that is a work of supererogation for which he has at present no use. Deborah and her brother Gabriel were here when I came. Their ages are eleven and five, and they come from the far north. Deborah was in the mission hospital at Ironbound Islands for some time as the result of a burning accident. While trying to lift a pan of dog food from the stove, she upset the scalding contents over her legs. Her elder brother had to drive her eighteen miles on a comatic to the hospital, and the poor child must have suffered greatly. Gabriel is a very naughty but equally lovable child. He is never out of mischief, but he is always very penitent for his misdeeds. Afterwards, his bent is towards theology, and he speaks with the authority of an ancient divine on all matters pertaining thereto, and with an air of finality which brooks no argument. When someone was being given the priority in point of age over me, he was heard to indignantly exclaim that Jesus and teacher are the oldest people in the world. He is no advocate for the equality of the sexes, and closes all discussion on equal rights by explaining that God made the boys and Jesus the girls. Our fast-coming winter is sending its harbingers, seen and unseen, into our harbor. Chief among these, one notices the assertiveness of the dogs. All through the summer they slink pariah-like about the place, eating whatever they can pick up, and seeking to keep their miserable existence as much in the background as possible. Now the winter is approaching, and it is their little day. Mrs. Uncle Life can testify to the fact that they are not wholly suppressed when it is not their little day. Last summer she found no less important a personage than the leader of the team in her bed. Her newly baked loaf was lying on the pantry shelf before the open window. Whiskey, this place is strictly prohibition, but every team boasts its whiskey, leapt in, made a satisfying banquet off her bread, and then forced open the door into her bedroom adjoining the pantry. He found it a singularly barren field for adventure, but after his unaccustomed hearty meal, the bed looked tempting. He was found there two hours later, placidly asleep. The children are looking forward to Christmas and are already writing letters to Santa Claus, which are handed to me with a great secrecy to mail to him. I once watched the little ones playing at Christmas with an old stump of a bush to which they attached twigs as gifts and gravely distributed them to one another. When I saw one mite handing a dead twig to a smaller edition of himself and announcing in a lordly fashion that it was a piano, I realized what Father Christmas was expected to be able to produce. End of section three. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan.